Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at PlagiarismToday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show, episode number 366. It is 66, right? I didn't for, I didn't drop an episode, did I? Yes, yeah, 66. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I'm from the website Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. And joining me, as usual, the man who gives love a bad name, attorney Evan Sherez, who is not here to dole legal advice, but he is here for our entertainment and our informational uh, pursuits. Evan, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. So where did that Bon Jovi reference come I from? I have no idea. It's just I have a friend of mine who absolutely hates Bon Jovi, so I feel compelled to throw a Bon Jovi reference out every chance I get. How dare he hate Bon Jovi? Huh? How dare she hate Bon Jovi? How dare she? I, I, I agree. She lumped him with Nickelback. With Oof. Nickelback? That's, that's, that's unfair. Well, but anyways, Evan, how are you doing? You're looking, and Evan, for those of you listening to the audio, you're missing out. Evan is looking downright spiffy today. Um, <laughs> yes, I do have an event to go to after we tape. Um, I'm doing well. I'm back in Canada. Um, uh, no, we're all disappointed about that. <laughs> yeah. No okay, more no international more, incidents. No more international shows, no. And uh, you know what? I'm just ready to talk some copyright uh, with you and with, uh, with our listeners, should they choose to uh, send us a question over Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm ready to jump right into it. So, yeah, so uh, and you've got our Twitter handles on the video chat. So feel free to tweet your questions to us. Probably the easiest way is we have yet to master the art of Google Plus video chat, but it's okay. We will eventually get there. I promise you. We are intelligent adults, and I assume Google would make not create anything that has poor customer support, right? Right. Of course not. All right, so John, so, why don't you jump into the stories we're going to be talking about this week? Yeah, we got a lot of great stories this week. A surprising turn of events and a Shakira uh, plagiarism lawsuit. This one really kind of confuses me, and I'm kind of excited to see what you have to say. Um, update or two on the MPAA case against MovieTube, and a further update on the uh, case between Michelle Fawn and the uh, record label Ultra Records. Um, a hosting company wanting to wipe some 1,100-plus mega-upload servers that it still has uh, active and all the data on, apparently. Um, U.S., uh, the, um, blah, 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 blah. Dallas Buyers Club, uh, LLC, suffers a setback in Australia. But in the U.K., police are reporting some striking success in reducing ad spending on piracy sites. 
Finally, we have two stories of, I guess, making lemons of lemonade when you're dealing with piracy and copyright infringement. First is a, lead, a woman in Leeds in the UK who is shocked, shocked, I say, to find uh, t-shirts with her face on it being sold <laughs> at a local store. And a mobile uh, game makers decide to turn the tables on uh, pirates, if you will, with a little uh, feature in the uh, game for those who download it illegally. So, we got a lot to go over this week. So, starting with Shakira? Starting with Shakira, and if you'd give me a second here, John. From. From. I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten how catchy, how catchy that, that hook, hook is. It's, uh, it's a hook, all right. So a hook and a quarter there. That is Shakira's Loka. Yeah, you know. Be, now I know what's going to be in the background in my brain for the next hour. Thank you, Evan. You're very welcome. And for those of you who are not watching video, you did miss John and I dancing for just a few seconds. So for for a brief, brief, brief moment. I that is um, that is Shakira's multi-platinum loca, which sold five million copies, um, which was allegedly plagiarized. Uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Arius uh, claimed that. Uh, he wrote a tune, uh, which he registered in '98, uh, I believe. Or no, sorry, it was it was registered later on, but as he claimed, was created in 1998. Uh, uh, he claimed that basically, like you stole my song, and he sued, and he won. Now, some uh, last-minute evidence came forth. Yeah, and to be clear, where we were, the judge had ruled infringement had taken place. We were getting to the damages phase of stuff. We were starting to talk money. And then, yeah, evidence came up, and I'm unclear on this part. What evidence did come up? So the evidence that came up, John, was that uh, the uh, actual tape, uh, which the uh, plaintiffs claimed was the the song. This is is the music. This is what we released. This is the package. Uh, This was the album. Um, The photo, this is part of it. Uh, this, this, the photo of the person who was on the cover as an adult was claimed to be uh, a third party. And this guy would have been uh, – he, he was born in the 80s, late 80s. So he would have been only eight or nine years old at the time of the release, of the alleged release of this tape. But he was an adult on the picture. So it was clearly released like 10 years later. So there was no way it could have been released in 1998. With uh, as, as packaged because the person depicted on it, and of course, that is not a time travel. They falsified evidence on their copyright registration, which means the registration is null and void, which means no case. Goodbye, <laughs> right? Uh, at least for right now. So, as you correctly pointed out, that a uh, copyright registration can be canceled, can be voided due to fraudulent misinformation, fraudulent misrepresentations, and you need a copyright registration in order to sue in federal court. It's like a so, jurisdictional issue, which is kind of bizarre, but, you know, this is the United States. What do you expect? Yeah, and so uh, this, uh, this guy was, was licking his chops, uh, you know, seemed to have gotten away with murder, and it turns out that it was all from. Yeah, and it's, it's very, very rare for this type of thing to happen in courts, these types of turnarounds, especially this late in the game. And the question immediately raises, how did they not spot this, like, years ago when this case started you know if the uh, whole uh case or the whole if, if the entirety of the new evidence which 
isn't clear yet is just this this guy. Can you imagine the associate, you know, thinking like, you know what? We've tried everything. Who is this guy on this box? Yeah, yeah. Who is this dude? Let's, wait, let's okay. Google him. Let me no. Let, let me look at the. Oh, it, it claims to be you know uh, John Smith. Let me look up John Smith. Wait, the John Smith that they claim to be was only born in. This is you know like it all clicks. The light bulb goes on and 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 and, it's like, and you can imagine this associate running down the hall of the law firm, yeah, exactly. screaming, waving his new evidence as he goes. Eureka! Eureka indeed. So yeah, that type of this type of stuff does not happen very often, and it's very very rare, especially in copyright. Because usually with copyright, most of your evidence is pretty well laid out early in the process. You don't have a lot of evolving evidence as you go type thing. So this yeah, this is pretty interesting. But yeah, and it, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, Shepherd Fairy case, where uh, Shepherd Fairy, the a street artist, was battling with the Associated Press. Uh, Fairy made his Obama Hope poster based upon a photo owned by the Associated Press. Okay. And the issue was okay, he did it, but was it fair use? Legit question, right? We've got, we got some legit issues here. And so they were battling back and forth, but then it was revealed that Ferry lied about what photo he had used. Um, and the photo he'd used, he claimed was one where like Obama was only a tiny part of the photo, but he'd actually used a, a close-up shot of Obama. And mind you, that didn't really drastically change the fair use questions, but here he, now he'd falsified evidence in the court. His attorney dropped him. His whole case fell apart. You know, this, it's all about you're much better off being on the up and up and presenting a weak case than falsifying a stronger one at all times. Absolutely. You know, when you uh, lose credibility before the court, you're in big trouble. And if your lawyer abandons you because you're not being truthful with him, which he has right to do, uh, um, you know, it takes a lot for a lawyer to be able to drop his client mid-trial. He's got a very strong ethical responsibilities towards his, towards his client. But, you know, when a client isn't being truthful with you, you end up making misrepresentations to the court, and uh, you know that's not something a lawyer wants to be doing. So it definitely gives him grounds to lose his client uh, under some conditions. And uh, if that was the case, uh, you know it's a big problem for him. And uh, strange coincidence, I actually knew the attor- attorney involved in that. Anthony really? Falzone was the attorney. I met him at a conference in the Netherlands once upon a time. Um, we communicated a few times since. Yeah, he's a great stand-up dude. He believes strongly in the case, and I, I can imagine it was a deep personal, you know, decision to back away from it at that moment. I can only, I, I did not speak to him after it happened, but I can easily, knowing his personality, imagine how conflicted he was. His name was Anthony Calzone. Falzone, F A. Okay, I was going to say. No, no, no. Pretty sweet. He's not named after a wonderful, um, wonderful Italian dish. He is, um. He is um, an excellent attorney. He's from the uh, Center for Internet and Society, actually, currently, at Stanford University. Very nice. All right, well, uh, let's move on to the MovieTube case. We talked about this Yeah, last we, we week. talked about this previously, and it's, this one's interesting because you have this group of sites called MovieTube, and they apparently operated something like two dozen different domains, and they were basically a very complicated and involved movie and TV show streaming operation. Not, nothing much else to say about it. And the movie studios, as one might expect, sued them so far, all boring and uninteresting. 
But the MPAA, in their request, made sort of a petition for injunction that went a bit above and beyond what you normally expect in this case. Normally you expect an injunction to cease, you know, the infringement and all that. But they also wanted an injunction that would have barred anybody in the United States from pretty much ever doing business with these sites, including ad providers, caching providers, hosting providers, you name it, would have barred them. Yeah, this definitely jumped out at me last week. I don't know if I brought up it that it jumped out at me last week, but uh, I my first instinct was like, they, they can't do that. Uh, but I didn't really get the chance to, to dive into it in more depth, and that's what this amicus brief really goes into. Uh, as you mentioned, part of the relief requested was an injunction, which was asking uh, basically all others, uh, asking the court to order others to stop linking to the site, etc. So... Google and uh, you know their Google and company, the, the usual suspects on that side who usually band together for amicus briefs. You know, Yahoo's, Google's, Amazon's. Uh, they're like, hey, um, what the hell? <laughs> what about our basic due process? How can an injunction be issued against us? We're not even, you know, a, a named party. Uh, you know, the law is here. This is, and if you go to basic civil procedure, it says that, you know, in order for us to be uh, subject to this uh, injunction, it either has to be us as one of the parties who are named, or we have to be an agent uh, or a subsidiary of the companies that are named in the in the lawsuit, or we have to quote actively participate in the party's violations, none of which is happening. So they make this very important uh, due process and civil procedure argument, which is that you know this this proposed preliminary injunction is quote, breathtakingly broad, and we have basic due process rights that uh, need to be honored. Uh, not only that, but they say that, you know, even apart from the due process in, you know, issue, there's a way to get ISPs to stop doing something, you know, and that's why we have the DMCA. There's a whole process for this. There are procedural and substantive conditions that need to be met in order for a, an ISP to be subject to an injunction. You know, we've talked about this many times before, you know, the whole safe harbor concept. So, you know, the argument was twofold. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, these are very, very strong arguments. Um, the, uh, the the studios did, did make a few arguments as to why they thought the due process uh, was respected. Uh, they had talked. They had mentioned two previous cases in which uh, parties were subject to an injunction if they weren't the named defendant. But such as the, uh, uh, the the quote unquote groove sh- the the one of the groove shark cases involving Cloudflare. Right, but in, in those cases you have you know this direct privity uh, of contract. I don't know if that was the, the Cloudflare where the court said it was direct privity, but the the, the uh, companies end up being. Uh, much more directly involved. Yeah, and, and like then that process, like Cloudflare, the registration of an account, the contract binding between the two parties, etc. Yeah, it's it's different than with like Google, for example, who just simply indexed the site. Right now, uh, Copy Hype, uh, Terry Hart over at the Copyright Alliance has a uh, great blog called Copy Hype, and uh, he he uh, forwarded his write up my way. Uh, on the issue, which is that, uh, at least for the due process challenge, uh, that the courts in the past have said that this is not a due process violation because once the injunction is issued against you, uh, when you are 
sued for being in contempt of that injunction, you can make the the uh, the court provides the court basically allows you to challenge your status as an as a quote active participant, which is uh, the standard for whether you should, you're subject to the uh, injunction uh, for in the civil procedure part of the argument that I had explained earlier. Uh, so so under that you know logic, there's really no due process violation here. But you know, in my opinion, it's really not very smart judicial policy to issue injunctions and have uh, ISPs and other people risk or, or basically have them make them ignore an injunction. That's a huge deal to ignore an injunction. Contempt penalties are massive and you you know some contempt penalties are criminal. They rack up like daily. I mean. So 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 to force a company to choose between uh, you know shutting down their services or Alternatively, being in contempt and then challenging something on the merits during a uh, proceeding, you know, uh, where someone's going to argue that you are in contempt. I don't think that's smart policy, you know. I, I, you know, I, I really don't. And I'm curious to see where the court ends up coming down here because the uh, amicus brief made by Google here is like, hey, this is a huge deal, you know, just to make us subject to an injunction over people that we're, you know, we have no active participation with is, is just bad. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a pretty copyright guy, but uh, I think in this case they may have uh, an argument here. And the, and the thing about it is there were certain parties they were requesting injunction to that were not very controversial, I think. Any hosting providers, et cetera. Those are, like I said, active participation. That's where you reach the right. point of active participation when you've got a contract, an agreement between the two parties. You've got that active participation. So hosting providers, caching providers like Cloudflare, any advertisers, I think there's not much controversy there. But when you start getting into search engines and these people that really have nothing to do with the site other than they indexed it along with trillions of other pages. Yeah, I'm curious why they haven't uh, filed to enter the lawsuit as you know, interested party here. Uh, there's a procedure to do that. It's it's an interesting. All this is an interesting argument, but unfortunately, as per an update that came out yesterday and today, it's also kind of moot right now because right. the MPAA has ended up dropping this injunction because MovieTube shut down almost immediately after the lawsuit was filed. All the sites went down. There's really no injunction argument to be heard now. They've enjoined themselves. Right, the concept of moot. And we're enjoying them enjoining themselves. No ah. real injuries left to. Uh, settled, and you know, a judge can't just issue an opinion uh, based on the principles of law that were before it if there's no real uh, issue at stake. There's a few, few exceptions to that, uh, but uh, they're not really that relevant to copyright law. Uh, and you know, I think that brings us maybe to our next story here about yeah, Michelle Fan. The one thing that, that the ad, real quick though, is that they are still pursuing a permanent injunction, but that is, of course, more of a formality at this point. <laughs> Against uh, against movie two, yeah. or, or are they pursuing a permanent injunction against everybody? That would make it, that would be very yeah. Easy. That's true, but they're most like I, I I don't know. They did not specify in the article I read in, in the two articles I read about who they're filing seeking a permanent injunction from or against. But so yeah, but it doesn't. It looks like this case is fizzling out just because the site's gone, right? And there's not much really to be gained or gleaned here. Okay. Well, well Michelle, the, yeah. This takes us to the next one though, and Michelle Fawn. 
makeups and makeup artist and YouTube star. And this is like the incredible thing about a YouTube. A, a woman who is very good with makeup can literally get millions of followers on YouTube and make crazy bank at it. That just that that's insane to me. You know? Yeah. Well, I don't know why makeup is a very, very amazing art, and believe me, I say that both as an appreciator of all arts and also as a haunted house guy, a haunter and movie aficionado that appreciates the work that goes into it. But anyways, she has a YouTube channel that's very, very popular, and like many YouTubers, she uses background music, and apparently some of that background music came from artists such as Cascade, um, Dead Mouse, and other uh, dubstep artists. Uh, from Ultra Records. And right. And the process in which she uh, was able to first use Cascade's music is extremely important here. And this is a very, very important lesson for agents, for representatives of musicians of all kinds, uh, even for lawyers, you know, um, which is that uh, sometimes without really knowing you're doing it, you're agreeing to a very long term license. Uh, you know, and uh, when you don't imply that there's a length or a certain way that the license expires or a certain methodology for you to end a contract, then you end up in trouble like uh, Cascades people are in trouble here. Uh, maybe not, maybe in trouble is the wrong word, maybe unable to really capitalize uh, as in this situation. So proceed with what's, what's happened uh, since uh, I think. Um, the original lawsuit was filed in July 2014. Um, and then Michelle Fine actually filed a counter lawsuit sometime thereafter, sometime later that year. And she claimed that she had gotten permission from various promotional agents at, at uh, Ultra Records to use the music. And basically, she claimed she had a license to use it so long as she gave links to iTunes. Right. Um, so they had, they had emailed back and forth. Yeah. Uh, and she was like, hey, I'd love to be able to use his music. And then the Cascades representative says, quote, we're more than happy to let uh, to let you, Michelle Fan, use the content. And then she says, "Okay, great. I'm gonna link." Uh, or, or she had originally said, "Great, uh, can I use it? I'll link uh, at your material. I'll give you credit for the material." And they're like, "Sure, we're more than happy to let you." So in her mind, a contract is made. In in order for her services of linking to the music and bringing exposure and to not the an artist. unreasonable way to think about it either. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Especially since she got um, it in writing. Yep. And so, um, you know, things went on smoothly until all of a sudden the takedown notices are sent. Yeah. And she's like, hey, wait, no, we have a contract. I'm allowed to use this. You know, we've been letting you use it for years. And so, you know, it brings up the question, John, is that if you have a, an agreement with someone or at least an implied agreement that doesn't have an end date, uh, can you just send a takedown notice when you feel like you're done giving this person a license? And I think the answer to that is no. Um, you know, there's obviously going to be some sort of notice requirement. Uh, and in this case, since they didn't specify it, it ends up, in my opinion, end up being a reasonable notice, which may not have been given in this case. Yeah. And Fawn, on her side, claims she was being damaged by all of these notices against her account, harming her ability to monetize her videos and possibly putting her account in danger of being closed because of the YouTube strike system. So she had her own ish damages issue here. But they've all kissed and made up. As is tradition. <laughs> um, and they all seem to be besties, BFS forever, and are moving forward with whatever new arrangement they have reached. 
um, right, as part of their silly, silly lawsuit. There's no real damage to uh, to Cascade with Michelle Fan using her, her his music as long as she's you know giving a half reasonable royalty, which I'm sure that they have come to, and you know this whole thing could have avoided if they had said, hey, you know we had this agreement worked for us for a while, but. We never really talked about terms, so we're gonna. Well, our intention is to have this agreement between us expire in three months. And if you'd like, we can arrange uh, a reasonable licensing fee for you to continue, and which I think uh, would have probably been responded to rather favorably by her. It does not sound like Fawn was being unreasonable at any point in this. Um, she understands the value of music. She's not some random YouTuber who's. You know, jacked a copy of Let the Body Sit the Floor for his Call of Duty <laughs> montage. <laughs> um, she's very savvy about these things, is the impression I've gotten um, reading articles about her and reading interviews from her. So, yeah, she's not your, uh, she's smarter than your average YouTuber, I eh, boo boo. <laughs> well, okay, you, let's, let's, fan, let's, let's play a game here. You own a web hosting company. And one of your biggest clients, someone who has over a over a thousand servers with you, suddenly gets shuttered by the federal government. Mm -hmm. That's a bad day for business, right there. It's a real bad day for business. But even worse, the federal government steps in and says, "Hey, by the way, we need you to maintain and preserve those servers while this case is ongoing." It's evidence. It's evidence. It's pretty flatly evidence. Um, so you pay for it, federal government? Apparently not. Uh, expensive is what you're going to say. Yeah. And and basically, oh, and by the way, this case, thanks to extradition and other stuff, it's going to drag on for like you know way more than three years. And that's exactly pretty much what happened to Carpathia Hosting, who has sat on. 1,103 servers that they have maintained in storage, unable to do anything with because of the ongoing case and against Kim.com and the others behind Mega Upload. But now that the company has been purchased by QTS, which just sounds like a bad scrabble hand to me, um, basically um, they are petitioning the court a second time saying, hey, look, it's been over three years. You haven't done anything with them. It's costing us $9,000 a day. Um, can we uh, please erase these servers and do something else with them now? Yeah, that seems like a reasonable request to it me. Does. Uh, you know, uh, from what I've read, uh, Mega Upload server hosts in Europe were allowed to delete their files. Um, and, you know, it, it seems pretty reasonable to me that the federal government should be paying to have these servers uh, stored if they if they're the ones who require it you know oh, and, this company and the other alternative they give is I think a reasonable one saying hey how about this we'll move the data somewhere else we'll put in like Amazon cloud servers somewhere it's way cheaper there rather than us having to hold all of these servers because remember servers are a lot more than just a hard drive it's you know RAM and processors and stuff it's Hardware, electric yeah. costs, uh, uh, you know, maintenance of the actual building in which the servers are stored. Yeah, it's, it's crazy expensive, and if all they want is the data, just move the data. That's right. Get the data somewhere else, and that'll probably be much, much cheaper for everyone. So, yeah, I think it's a perfectly reasonable request, but Kim.com and others are concerned that, hey, thousands of users may lose their data forever, to which I say they've already lost it for three and a half plus years. Yeah, is, is is there also like 
episodes of the Big Bang Theory as part of this data? Like, how much viewership do they really think they're going to get, you know, in the extremely unlikely situation in which it's eventually released to them? Uh, what are they really after here? The, the, the old emails, the old accounts information, or is it the actual content that they really want to keep? You know, if, if I was them, I'd let the evidence be destroyed. Yeah, just I say let it go because the, I, I'm almost a thousand percent certain that the government has already backed up repeatedly what they consider to be the most important evidence. They're already battling in New Zealand. They're already battling here in the U.S. They've got the evidence that they want. And I, if they haven't gone back to these servers in three years, it's like I feel like it's my mom telling me, if you haven't worn that jacket in two years, you need to donate it. That's what I feel. I can almost hear her, you know. Hi, Mom. Yeah, I'm reading here uh, that all their information from their European servers are gone. It, the U.S. government has this most important information. It, I mean, I'm going to try and actually find this motion to see what the standard is because I'm certainly no evidentiary to preservation expert. This is actually a very niche area of the law. and So I'm curious to see how this... Uh, how this plays out. Anyways, yeah, it's gonna be uh, I'll try to get back to you guys on that one, so stay tuned. All right. Um, well, speaking of uh, Down Under, it looks like we're um, Dallas Buyers Club in Australia suffers what can only be described as a pretty nasty setback. Now, their MO for the longest time has basically been, you know, they will file these lawsuits against John Doe uh, defendants, hope to get ISPs, to turn over the relevant information, then basically close the lawsuits and move on um, to trying and contacting these individuals directly and getting these relatively small but still profitable settlements for infringement of the movie The Dallas Buyers Club, predictably. Uh, enough. Doesn't this remind you a little bit of the uh, the gentlemen, the people who were scolded in, uh, in Michigan for doing the same thing with pornography? Yep. Uh, you're thinking Malibu Media, yes. You know, I, uh, this is the strategy that a lot of music and movie industry people were advocating like 10 or 15 years ago. Like, But I thought the sue, sue, your, sue your client was the kind of uh, strategy that was abandoned a long time ago. Well, it was, a, and this is one of the interesting things. The RIAA pursued the strategy famously shortly after the Napster craze. But their pattern, their MO was quite different. They would actually sue an individual as a John Doe, then get the identity, and then pursue that lawsuit, right. which is perfectly fine and legal. That's not in any way unusual or shocking. And not what these people are doing, which is Listen, sending out Hey, these, we're sending, uh, like, we're going to sue 120, 100, 1,000, whatever people. Well, and once with we the get the identity, right? oops, we drop the lawsuit, and then we send them letters. It's a very different approach. And the RAAA abandoned it partly because they weren't making any money at it because their approach is not cost-effective, as it turns out. Yeah, well, in Australia, it turns out that a court has given them the right to uh, uh, seek compensation from more than 4,700 downloaders. Uh, they were given the right to sue, but not to speculative invoicing, which means that if, if they were given the identity of these people, they weren't allowed to just kind of send out letters en masse. Um, and they were also told that they could uh, seek to recover only the cost of the 
film itself, so very little money, uh, oh, as well as legal bucks. fees and no extra damages. So, uh, oh, and it also well, there no were, extra damage other than legal fees. They did say right. legal fees. Well, I mean, you're not—they're not making any money by getting their legal fees back. So it becomes a business operational. It becomes a, a bad business uh, idea, especially because they've been asked to post a six hundred thousand dollar bond before they can receive the receive the names and addresses of the users that download the movie illegally, probably anticipating this uh, speculative invoicing uh, to to possibly occur. So they're like, okay, you're going to post up six hundred thousand dollars, and if you end up doing what we don't want you to do, we buy the money. Now, I've got to say, I'm a little bit unnerved by the no damages thing, because I understand the idea of damages being reasonable. People are like, well, why shouldn't the damages just be the cost of the film? Well, A, because you weren't just downloading and viewing it, you were uploading and sharing it, you were participating in the infringement. But also, if the damages are just the cost of the film, then there's no reason to ever buy the film. Right, there's zero deterrence value. There's zero deterrence value. There needs to be some deterrent value, because basically, if all I'm ever going to get hit with is the damages for the film, then why not just pirate everything and the few times I do get dinged, I just pay for what I would pay for the film anyway. I'm, I'm on board with you. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I get nerved by that, but I understand also that the damages should be reasonable. I agree. And I'm also a little curious about this ban on, quote, speculative invoicing because you know generally a court is wants to encourage settlements and so if they're given the right to sue, why aren't they okay with the right of speculative invoicing? You know, speculative invoicing has kind of become a touchy subject for a lot of uh, people because, like I said, courts do try to push settlements, but it, m- many people feel that these settlements are trying to take advantage of the legal system by offering settlement deals that are cheaper than defending yourself, making it so that even if you are not guilty, it, it doesn't behoove you to defend yourself. And that's the big concern there is that it's kind of a lopsided settlement arrangement. I mean, it's like I have said before, if I get hit by one of those notices, which I don't know why I would, I mean, if if I can't just go, hey, do you know that I'm Jonathan Bailey and you know what I do for a living and all that, if that doesn't make it go away, then I pretty much would have to pay it because there's no way that I could afford, no way it makes sense to defend myself. So that's one of the issues there. But I, I think the damages should be reasonable. But I also am not comfortable with the no damages thing either. It just doesn't seem quite um, right within the spirit and the intent of the law. Well, from questionable judicial policy to effective legislative policy. Yeah, this is interesting. This next one really uh, fascinates me. We've talked a a fair amount on this show about the um, City of London uh, intellectual police intellectual prime property union city of london by the way is not the same thing as london it's, it's the city of london is more like a one of the nations of the united kingdom than it is the city of london it's it's a it's bizarre cgp gray did a video on it go check it out um but they have had been very aggressive in dealing with intellectual property one of the things that they did was they targeted uh the advertisements that appear on piracy sites within the uk specifically um, they had created what can be kind was they call the infringing websites list because you know creative names be damned they couldn't you know it is what it is very clear but basically it had to be a identified as a site that is participating in endorsing or encouraging piracy and then b not respond to the pip coup whenever they approached you about your presence on the list you know not basically you know stick your fingers in your ears and go away. 
Um, so sites that were on that list, they turned it over to advertisers in hopes that they would stop you know, mainstream advertisers, major mainstream advertisers from appearing on it, and it seems to have worked. There has been a 73% decline in the last two years in mainstream advertisers on sites that are on this list. So that's a pretty huge success. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The top. Uh, the, I'm not sure how they define the top, but the are the article mentions that the top advertisers, top online advertisers, have been giving 73 percent less money to these companies. So it seems to be pretty effective to me. You know, follow the money has been the the, the mantra of most uh, intellectual property owners and uh, yeah. industry associations. And you know, we have some pretty good proof of, of that that it works. You know, when you go after uh, and put the onus on these advertisers. Uh, uh, to, uh, to to at least somewhat police their their buys, yeah, where their money's going, yeah, where their buys, and also talking to uh, and finding and making a good master list of the infringing sites. To me, and what a lot of people say is, well, even the Pirate Bay has ads. You know, every they'll still find other advertisers. I'm like, yes, but you have to understand, Russian brides do not pay nearly as much as Gucci. <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, no, they. Uh, There's a huge difference not. in the amount of money you can hope to rake in from those two. You know, you're gonna get way, way more from these respected brands, and you're going to be from some random poker site hosted in the Caribbean. You know, so it, yeah, it, it it doesn't kill the revenue stream, but it, it severely constrains it, and that's one of the things is, you know, mainstream legitimate sites can obtain these licensing deals with Target. They can work with Walmarts. They can work with Amazon. They can work with all these big companies. And they can reap the rewards of those benefits. But if you make it so that the pirate sites can't, that, uh, that's a big hindrance for them and for their attempt to establish themselves and earn revenue um, from their business. Well, we're, we're ending the story well, on two very interesting uh, Yes. Um, one is of a, a woman, an English, we're staying in England, a woman from Leeds who all of a sudden found herself uh, as the star, as the main attraction. Can you imagine how weird that would be, finding her face on a random t-shirt, though? I can't even fathom that. That's a, And she said it was a friend, but still, you know, it's kind of surreal. <laughs> Yeah, um, I thought it was a pretty cool picture, you know, sweet sunglasses, lots of cool colors. I would be a little flattered, but, uh, you know, when you are a photographer or an artist and it's your photograph that's been uh, misappropriated and is being infringed upon through the printing and reproduction of hundreds of t-shirts, yeah, your, your, your reaction is a little different. Basically, um, what she did is apparently it was at a, um, a company, admittedly, I know very, very little about uh, the size and relative you know, impact of various retail businesses in the UK, but from a company called Shop Direct was selling the T-shirts. They apparently acquired from some random place in England, from India, rather. From a third party that, that, that we don't really know too much about. And I think this is a really good example of copyright protecting somebody who, you know, needs the protection, who deserves the protection. And, you know, especially when you look at how this thing resolved, I think, it, you know, it's a really good little example of the, the effective role uh, of copyright. Uh, and, you know, we have um, this woman, she sends, she sends a demand letter threatening to sue, and the company's like, hey, whoa, we, we bought this t-shirt in good faith, we had no idea, 
you know, here's the money we made from it. Here are the 267 t-shirts that I we I bet that was an awful have. shipment in the receipt. Um, I'm just saying UPS guys like, rolls up with several bucks. <laughs> I have a 267 here, please. of you. <laughs> yes. And so this woman decides that, hey, you know what, what I'm going to do with this is that I'm going to keep on selling them really, really and I'm going to cool give them money her. to charity. So, you can buy them on eBay. She sold them on eBay, which I thought was an interesting decision. But regardless, um, yeah, it, I thought it was a great resolution to this. She doesn't seem to be interested in taking this any further. I don't know how practical it would be, given that they came from India. Uh, right. Uh, they the, the teachers came from India, which, if that's exactly where uh, this, this company got their stuff, you know, I'd be interested to see the communication and how it happened because whenever you're dealing with a, you know uh, foreign uh, production uh, companies or for foreign producers you should always be a little bit wary of intellectual property especially when things come from China or India and uh, maybe that sounds bad but uh, over, I would say overseas intellectual in property you rights have, you have to make countries. sure that their actions are going to yes. mesh with both the cultural and legal norms in your country on intellectual property I would say that's pretty much anywhere um, yes, this is yeah. what I was trying to say. Yeah, this is. Um, uh, you hear about our last story is awesome. On, I love featuring them because I love the imagination and creativity. Um, the developer Noodle Cake Studios. I love the name, by the way. I have to throw that out too. Um, they've been battling some incredibly high piracy on their Android games, and apparently, Android piracy is unfathomably huge. I had no. I mean, I, I'm always blown away by the numbers. I, I've seen them before, but I'm always. Numbers blew me away as well. Apparently, uh, this game sh that Shooting Stars produced uh, has only been paid for and uh, eleven percent of the time. The, the, the tracking on, on software items. remained intact. They they fear some of the pirated copies might have even removed the tracking software. So, uh, but yeah, and basically, um, the result of that is they decided to take matters into their own hands a little bit. Uh, they, they they released a version themselves of Shooting Stars on various uh, BitTorrent and other piracy websites, but it contained an added feature, if you will. Um, it included uh, a special wave of boss characters called Daft Premium, a parody of Daft Punk, and they had it included a series of enemies that quote unquote had an obscene amount of health, followed by a final boss who could not be killed. Right, and once you once this boss killed you, it said, you know, hey schmuck, go buy the game. And we know that this is an illegal copy because we released it ourselves on torrent sites. And you know, this is the second best trolling I've ever seen. Obviously, the best all time, which will never be beaten. Yeah. Oh is, yeah. Uh, the the uh, game developer simulator, where a company re who released a pirated version for people to download, and towards the end of the the development, where you, you know your game is about to be released. Uh, if you have the pirated version, the uh, you you fail your 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 game your game fails because it's you know it's been it says like oh no our game's been pirated sorry you fail and that would happen over and over again and people would post the message boards just like I'm playing it I'm four hours in and every single time you know my stuff is does anyone know how to get around this it was create hilarious the most amount of broken stuff Are you familiar with the um, SNES game Earthbound, 
It's an RPG. It's an RPG from that era, and it took like 40-odd hours to complete. It's a huge, massive RPG game. You'd play it, and you would pretty much, I believe, if I remember correctly, you get all the way to the final boss. Then the copy protection kicks in, and then it would erase your game if it detected it was a pirated game. It would crash, and it would erase your game before you could completely finish it. <laughs> yeah, they, oh, they got a lot them. of value, but man, I don't know. The, the, the pirate seems to have gotten a lot of value. After that much you know? work, but still, it, 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 yeah. And yeah, there have been a That's lot of mean. great ones. One of my other favorites. You no, know, diehard gamers like to finish this, what they The game Serious Sam Three, when they released it, if you pirated it, there was an unkillable scorpion. The scorpions were like pretty mundane characters for most of the time. From for the game, but they would program one deliberately to stalk you everywhere and be completely unkillable, and it would follow you into the end of the earth. So, you know, it reminds me of when uh, the movie studios just started uploading, and this is towards the end and the death of Napster and Kazaa. They would uh, upload uh, basically like copies that looked really good of a song, and it would just be like. Six seconds into the song, you know, it would be like, Sweet dreams are made of man! Would like kind of like jump at you and with like this like high pitch noise. Um, Groove Shark right before its closure. So that, that exact um, approach didn't really go away. It just kept getting um, more and more effective. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's always interesting to find non legal ways that content creators troll those that would attempt to pirate their work. Oh, absolutely. I agree completely. Agreed. Uh, I think uh, yeah, and, and sometimes even more effective if you get find a way to do it really well. Well, um, you know, if I would ever produce a game and uh, was worried about piracy, I think what I would do is uh, basically find a way to uh, release, like, Maybe like a, every so often, like super awesome updates that like you know everyone would want, and like almost with a statement that says like you know like even if you've pirated the game, it's no problem, and then have it kind of like be a, after a day or two, one at so like you know you'd let the waves come in, and then after a day or two something kicks that in that like checks to see if you bought it, it too. a little little time delay I thought would maybe be a good. But if you're a pirate, and that's an interesting way to look at it because if you're a pirate, hey, it's, I got a two day demo, you know. Yeah. And now I can make a decision, but you know, it, one of the most frustrating things, are you familiar with the Humble Bundle? Um, it's a really, if you're a gamer, it's really, really cool, you should check it out. Um, they do these regularly, it's DRM-free PC games, name your own price, most of the money goes to charity. A lot, you, you actually determine how much goes to charity and how much goes to developers. It's a really, really cool, and sometimes some of the bundles are really, really interesting. But, you know, I, I wrote a while back on Plagiarism Today about how a, a large percentage of the downloads of Humble Bundle are pirated. People don't bother to pay, um, you know, the one cent required to secure a Humble Bundle legitimately. It is, and that's just kind of, that's, that's the moment you realize that you can never completely crush piracy. It's, some people will always, always try to find ways to cheat the system, no matter how tempting the offer is. Yeah. There's a reason Radiohead only did it once. Yeah, I, I never really put much faith in the pay-what-you-can-afford system. Like, you put too much faith. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, you just 
people will take this for free when yeah. they have the chance. Of well, anything else? Any other final thoughts on copyright? Uh, you've got a shindig you're all dressed up for. Um, not that, well, I've got a, I've got a quick, uh, happy hour local networking event, and then I'm music also live band karaoke, the, the so any suggestions for what I should uh, go with tonight? They, they've got a pretty, pretty broad repertoire, it's a live band, and they do great karaoke, they're, uh, I, I was thinking, I've, I've heard, maybe I was going to do, I've heard uh, your cover of Everlong, you know I love that, um, a Foo Fighters so, song tonight, I love Everlong, you do it. You're one of the few people that that's one of those songs that gets eternally covered and eternally ruined. Maybe I'll do that one tonight. Um, it's like I love rock and roll by Joan Jett in that regard. Eternally covered, eternally ruined, or anything by Queen. Um, no one covers Queen. You just can't. It's it's physically impossible to cover Queen and not look like a jerk. Yeah, no one, no one work. could do Freddie um, Yeah, so it's just you know, not possible. You know, I would, you know, it personally, I'm possible. always fond of anything from you know that. You know, the 80s rock era, like Joan Jett, even the other Joan Jett songs can be covered pretty safely. But I know as a male vocalist, that might be a little more, di- might be a little bit funny. But um, you know, I know what you should do. You should cover Bon Jovi. You should do something by Bon. It's bon a, Jovi. It's a, I don't Just think I've ever really properly done that song that's Bon Jovi. It's it's a oh, song good idea. Covers. You have to do Bon Jovi now. All right, that settles it. I just remembered. Well, on that note, everyone, my name is Jonathan Bailey. Well, on the then, website uh, Plagiarism Today, that, which uh, can that wraps it up. PlagiarismToday.com, and I am username Plagiarism Today pretty much everywhere you care to look for me. E V A N S H A R E S. No E. Oh, I screwed it up. I'm like, don't say the A. Don't say the A. No E R E S. Oh my God! Have you ever done that? No, that is that is not correct. Sadie, oh my God! I t- it's like it's like don't laugh. It's impossible. <laughs> oh, that's too uh, that's too funny. Aaron, um, enjoy your event and enjoy your karaoke. I'll talk to you soon, and we will see you guys next week. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled "Me Boo." It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, PitX. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.